listening to Affect Autism, where Affect is the number one tool we use in supporting child development through playful interactions. Get 15% off any DIR 101 course and introduction to DIR and DIR floor time through ICDL.com by using the promo code AFFECTA15. That's A-F-F-E-C-T-A-1-5. Welcome back, listeners, viewers. I'm Daria Brown, and I am here this week with somebody I just met recently who I felt an instant connection with. Uh, I love this guy. I'm welcoming today Mickey Rowe. He has a prolific and varied career as an actor, a director, a consultant, and a public speaker. He's also autistic and legally blind. He believes that our differences are our strengths. And Mickey was our keynote speaker at ICDL, the International Council on Development and Learning's 27th annual New York City DIR Floor Time Conference last month. And he blew me away with his nuggets of wisdom and inspiration. So I'm so thrilled that you agreed to do a podcast. Mickey, welcome. Thank you so much for having me. It is such a huge honor to be here with you today. Oh, I, I throw that right back at you. It's such an honor for me to be able to interview you. <laughs> <laughs> so I want to today really let you guys, the listeners, get to know Mickey for a number of reasons. Not only is he super inspirational and uh, he's learned so much, but he really, really brings across how important it is for everybody to feel valued and how important it is to bring accommodation to autistic people so that they can thrive and live up to their potential. And Mickey has an amazing life story about the struggles that he went through as a child and things that led to him feeling like he could be himself and be valued for who he is. So um, Mickey, take it away. Oh, absolutely. My name is Mickey Rowe. Uh, for anyone watching the video who might be blind or low vision, um, I'm a white man with brown hair kind of swept to the side and glasses on. I'm wearing a very dark blue v-neck t-shirt right now. And I have some kind of colorful lights behind me and a, a be kind neon sign behind me as well. Um, and I was so lucky to get to be the first autistic actor to play Christopher Boone, the autistic lead character in the play, The Curious Incident of the Dog in the Nighttime. I, um, you know, I always really was drawn to theater and playing characters and putting on costumes when I was all growing up through high school. It was sort of my special interest. Um, so I would frequently not leave the house or go outside unless I was wearing a clown costume or a pirate costume. Um, and I, uh, I just felt like autistic people like myself, for instance, I'll just speak for myself. I do really well when I have really clear roles and guidelines telling me how to behave in any sort of interaction or what's expected of me. Um, so doing an interview or a podcast like this or keynote speaking at the conference is super easy for me because those roles are really, really clear, logical and laid out. Whereas if we met on the street, those roles aren't as clear. So when I got to dress up as a cost in a costume or that really always helped me to give sort of a lens with which I could see my interactions through. 
Um, I became obsessed with stilt walking. Stilt walking was my special interest from elementary school on. Um, and that's what led me to theater eventually because everyone sort of knew that I was just stilt walking was my thing and that that was what I always did. Um, and Mickey, so you, you showed a picture at the conference of you on stilts. And and I mean, I assume that the listeners know what it is, but just in case they don't, I, I have a picture. I wish I had it with me. I have a picture of me walking on stilts when I'm about 10 but I'm sure I wasn't nearly as good as you, but I remember how fun it was learning it. They're like big, long sticks. And then they have like a place for your foot sort of yes. a third of the way up and you stand on them and then you walk and you're like super giant tall. And then so much fun. And yeah. also, so I think you correct me if I'm wrong, or if this aligns with your experiences. So often I've found so many autistic people love just trying to get to the highest point in the room and climbing up on things and trying to get uh, to the highest point in the room. And also um, myself, for instance, because of my autism, I really need some extra proprioceptive help. My, I, I need extra proprioceptive sense coming in. So I always sleep with like a weighted blanket and thing, anything I can do to give myself some extra proprioception. Um, to kind of know where my body begins and ends in space and where I'm moving in space. And when you're stilt walking, I feel like all of that proprioception is so elevated It because every little movement translates into this kind of really big sensation. Um, so that was another reason why I loved stilt walking. So, so much because, fun. So much fun. So because people knew I liked stilt walking, at one point someone had heard that the Seattle Opera, the big, huge opera house here in Seattle, needed a stilt walker for um, the magic flute, for an opera called the magic flute to play an ostrich in one of the scenes. So I showed up with my stilts ready to audition and gosh, I probably weighed maybe 50 pounds at the time. And the costume also probably weighed 50 pounds and was obviously built for a <laughs> full-grown <laughs> adult stilt walker. Uh, so I didn't get that part, but they thought it was, I guess they just thought it was really cute that this autistic, this little autistic kid showed up with his stilts to audition. So they asked me if I wanted to be a um, volunteer supernumerary, like an extra in the next opera they were doing. Um, and so I did that and was kind of hooked from then on with theater. And I love how you said that your grandmother had access to the children's theater. And that's what that's sort of what introduced you to it. Yeah, absolutely. So my grandma, did, she had a subscription to Seattle Children's Theater. And it's so interesting, you know, growing up all through high school. So I was in special ed. Um, all through high school and had speech therapy and occupational therapy. Um, but growing up all through high school, I had no friends really. And I just spent lunch breaks and recesses pacing the hallways, not knowing who to talk to or how to talk to them or how to make a friend. Um, and yeah, I didn't know how to approach a table and ask if I could sit there with them or start a conversation. Um, so I would just take the, sack lunch that was packed for me and throw it away and then just keep pacing the hallway waiting for lunch to end weren't you um, hungry I guess so but I I just didn't know what to do 
because I didn't I couldn't sit couldn't figure out who to sit with or where to sit down to eat lunch and I just didn't know what to do um so that's what I did all through high school and no one really ever noticed or invited me to sit down or anything but when I got to go see shows at Seattle Children's Theater right I didn't get that many social interactions growing up um a lot of times too when people talk to me because they could tell I was autistic I'm gosh almost 35 now um and so I'm really I'm I'm a lot better at masking or passing as non-autistic than I was when I was in school but um people I think could just tell I was autistic and so when they talk to me they'd maybe raise their voice up really high and talk to me like I was a little kid uh, or like I was a baby even almost um but when I got to go see shows at Seattle Children's Theater all of a sudden I got to experience all these rich nuanced social interactions in a way that felt really safe for me right nothing was being asked of me beyond what I was capable of giving I just got to sit in this theater sit in this dark theater um, and passively be a part of all of these really exciting, rich, nuanced social interactions. And also when the actors spoke, when they direct address, spoke direct address to the audience, they talked to me just like they were talking to the kid next to me and the kid to the side of me. They didn't raise their voice when they got to me because they didn't know who I was in the audience. They just talked to me just like I was everyone else, just the way they rehearsed the show. So that made theater feel like such a really safe, special, magical place for me. That is so interesting to hear about that. So what I was going to ask, but then you answered it, was what do you mean by you got social interactions at the theater? You didn't mean you were socially interacting. You meant you got to witness the people on stage doing social interactions. Absolutely. And I got to feel like, you know, and we, I guess we see like our parents do social interactions, but it's different because we're not, it's not being presented for us to be a part of, I guess, or to observe, you know, and yes. in theater, it's so exciting because these social interactions are specifically made to almost make the audience feel like they are a co-conspirator in or a collaborator, in, you know? the audience is welcomed into these social interactions and welcomed into these lives and experiences that doesn't require anything of us that we're not feeling ready or safe to give. I love that. And, and I'm thinking of the literally two times I brought my son to some kind of theater things mm -hmm. and he's already 13 and a half, how he was so mesmerized and excited about it. But I mean, it was, like PJ Masks Live or whatever. So sure. it was a cartoon that he loved watching and then he got to see it live. But I'm thinking I need to maybe do some more of that. I would, you know, so often I've been a part of a lot of theaters that are putting on sensory friendly performances mm -hmm. um, or, and so, but the major thing I hear when talking to parents afterwards is that, oh gosh, or the parents might say, oh gosh, I would have never brought my child to the theater if it hadn't been for the sensory friendly performance because I would have been so af afraid and scared. <laughs> um, but now that now that I brought my kid to this show, I realize I'm going to sign my kid up to come see the next show here that there's not a sensory friendly performance of. And they realize that, 
even though the sensory friendly, I I almost sometimes think sensory friendly performances are almost sometimes more for the parents and the other people in the room than for the <laughs> than the autistic people because the autistic people are going to stim and do whatever they need to do regardless of whether it's a sensory friendly. We're like they're going to do the same thing no matter what. Right. Um, but sometimes the parents just need the title sensory friendly performance put on it to feel safe enough to bring their kids. But I've had so many experiences at theater. Gosh, maybe I'll find uh, this um, uh, post-show. After every performance, the stage manager writes a little email about how the show went, if something went wrong or anything that was different. But there's one from Seattle Children's Theater I should send you where um, there was a non-speaking autistic person in the audience. um, I think it was a field trip. It was a school matinee field trip um and during the show the kid was just riveted and started talking about all the things that were happening and asking if the dragon was going to come back uh when and was far more verbal and far spoke far more than um they'd experienced the child speaking before and I think it's just because of the safety the excite you know it's so much so similar to what we were learning about at the um DIR conference uh, that there's both that elevation, that play-like elevation of our senses, but it's it's happening in a really structured, safe environment that makes us able to have those elevated senses and elevated experiences without it um, putting in, putting someone into overload or having someone need to melt down or feel threatened because because it's in such a structured safe environment I love it I love it um so there's a few different directions I want to go the first thing I want to say is I acknowledge that I did a podcast with Michelle Abraham Montgomery and her son Kyle Robinson who is a 29 year old uh self-advocate and he talked about the case of the curious dog in the night. Oh, the curious the, incident of the dog. The in curious the incident <laughs> of the dog in the nighttime. Thank you. And that was the first time I had heard about it. And then you brought it up at the conference and then there was a third place. So like in the last month, all of a sudden I'm hearing about this book and, and I, I'm going to have to read it now. <laughs> I guess that's so, that's so funny. It's so funny how sometimes things happen like that, where we hear of something and then we just keep hearing of it again and again. So, so that's, I I will point listeners to that. It is like, just like briefly tell us the story. It's, it's an autistic character. Yeah. So um, the curious incident of the dog in the nighttime, I will say there's really great things about it. There's also things that are not accurate or helpful just because it was written by a non-autistic person who self-proclaimed did no research about autism when writing it. So it's just, if you go into it just expecting a fictional story um, that may or may not be helpful in regards to autism, but is a fun fictional kind of adventure story, great. That's the great best way to approach it. Um, but Curious Incident of the Dog in the Nighttime is a story about a 16-year-old boy who um, finds his neighbor's dog. He, you know, he always had a connection to his neighbor's dog um, and would go and uh, kind of pet it, go to the dog, go pet it through the fence. Um, and one day he shows up and the dog 
has been killed. The neighbor's dog has been killed with a pitchfork. Ooh. And he decide and because he's there when the, when the police arrive, he's there petting it and he's autistic and so the police just automatically assume he must have been the one who killed the dog. Um just cuz he's acting in ways that they don't understand. He's not he's not doing the socially expected behaviors and he's at near the dog must have been him and so he says you know what and he, his special interest is Sherlock Holmes all the Sherlock Holmes books so he decides he's gonna um become a detective and set out to solve the mystery and figure out who killed the dog and without giving too much away it sets him on a huge adventure that takes him on a solo journey through on trains and through the London tube all the way across England by himself uh, where really he just ends up making discoveries about himself and his family and things like that. So that's the curious incident of the dog in the nighttime awesome, uh, awesome. in summary. <laughs> Well, it seems to connect with a lot of people. So um, it it's worth it's worth delving into, I'll say. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, so uh, I wanted to go on two tangents here. The first one is I wanted to know if you're comfortable sharing a little bit about how your development went as a young child. Like, did you have, quote unquote, the medical model developmental delays, as they say? Um, when did you get diagnosed? Those kinds of things. Absolutely. Yeah. So I was non-speaking when I was younger. Um, I like curious and or my, my grandparents, I was lived at my grandparents' house for much of the time, a lot of the time. Um, and like, I guess in curious and I really loved interacting with all the sea animals and starfish and there were sea otter or river otters that lived under her porch. Um, uh, and so I loved interacting with all the animals because I feel like so often with autistic people, they people other outsiders put so much pressure on them to communicate in a way that is convenient for the non-autistic person rather than the non-autistic person being willing to modify their communication for what is convenient for the autistic person. So whereas my whole life, people had been really putting pressure on me to communicate in a way that was convenient for them or feeling like they could not interact with me or connect with me unless I was communicating in that way. You know, the animals didn't care. They just, they felt connected to me whether I was talking or not. (laughs) It didn't matter. Um, But so I was late to speak. And then um, when I was in elementary school I guess I started speaking but only like my grandparents could understand what I was saying if that makes any sense Mm -hmm. um so even though I was speaking and my grandma could understand me verbally um my teachers couldn't and they said well you know this does a lot of good this does us if we can't understand it doesn't really help us at all so I started speech therapy um which I did, I think, through fifth or sixth grade. Um, And I hated speech therapy. It was really hard and challenging. Um, Was not fun for me. Um, But 
after however many, I think in fourth or fifth grade, things finally started clicking. You know how sometimes when you're learning things, it feels like you're not getting it, not getting. And then all of a sudden, lots of things start clicking at once. And Mm -hmm. so that happened for me, I think around fourth or fifth grade in speech therapy. Um, And I had lots of occupational therapy all through middle school. Um, But interestingly enough, my parents actually decided not to tell me that I was autistic. Um, Right. They didn't have podcasts like this one to tell them that they didn't have to be afraid. Um, And I think that they felt so much stigma maybe around the label autism. So even though I had an IEP and, you know, near nearly all of my uh, accommodations in my IEP and the things that were listed in my IEP were things that I guess would traditionally be related to autism, like speech therapy, occupational therapy, these things. My parents told me that I just had my IEP for my eyesight only. Um, And then when I was in college, um, trying to figure things out on my, you know, there's so many services for people who are autistic until they turn 18. And -hmm. then you turn 18 and all of a sudden, nearly all of these services just vanish. (laughs) So I was, I went to college for theater for, for, to learn how to be an actor. Um, And all, everything just kind of (laughs) disappears. And so I was trying to figure things out. And then I had a therapist asking me if I was autistic. And um, after I told them more about myself, they referred me to the University of Washington Adult Autism Clinic. Um, And I was really lucky that I live in Seattle, Washington here and was going to UW where they just so happened to have an adult autism clinic because most places don't have um, something like that. And that's where um, I was diagnosed to my face where I got the, where I found out about the label autism. Um, And they also brought up to me that, you know, speech therapy, occupational therapy, all these things you probably weren't receiving them for your eyesight. That doesn't really, (laughs) that doesn't make sense. But, um, uh, but those were for autism. How did it feel getting that autism diagnosis? Like, was it one of those, I mean, imagine it might've been a shock, but also like, oh, this makes so much sense. This is who I am kind of thing. It felt so good to get my, it felt really incredible to get my autism diagnosis Because up until that point, it's not like I didn't know something was different about me. It's not like I didn't know I was in special ed. And it's not like I didn't know that people were speaking to me differently than they were speaking to all the other kids my age. Um, So without that autism label, I guess, you know, I was just left to think that it was just me that was wrong or that I felt I was wrong or I was stupid or bad or something was wrong with me. Um, But when I got my diagnosis, all of a sudden it was this huge relief to know, oh, I'm not bad or stupid or anything like this. I'm, I'm autistic. And there are so many other people in the world who experience the world the same way that I do as well. And it freed me up to start learning about myself more whereas I didn't have the ability to learn about myself as fully before that yes I imagine that's that's 
such a weight lifted off your shoulders and at the same time opens this world of mm -hmm. possibilities and excitement because now you just feel like um, more empowered, I guess. Absolutely, 100%. And, you know, often parents ask me when I'm speaking at um, conferences or things, parents come up to me and say, oh, well, should I tell my kid that they're autistic or what's the right age to tell your kid that you're autistic? Um, and I guess what I've been telling people lately is, you know, that I, I, or at least what I'm, every family is different, you know your family best, but I will t share with you what I'm trying to walk out in my family with my kid um, is hopefully when you just mention it in small ways so that you never, it, it shouldn't ever have to be this big conversation where you have to sit the kid down and say, I have news. I have some, I have something really big or awful to tell you. <laughs> You're autistic. Ooh, I know this is heavy. Like, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> that's one way to do it. But, um, and I think maybe that's what people are picturing when they say, how old should the kid be before I sit them down and mm -hmm. tell them? they're autistic. But I think what's better is just to bring it up in really small nonchalant ways when it's applicable throughout the day. So an example I'll give is, you know, my kids were all, um, were, they were all outside playing soccer in the yard outside. Um, and my autistic kid comes inside so upset saying, oh, I really like playing soccer with um, with my brothers, but I also hate playing soccer because they are all yelling and making so much noise. And I was like, well, that makes so much sense, bud, because because you're autistic. And, you know, sometimes when we're autistic, we experience sounds differently and more ex in a more extreme way than other people do. But, you know, your headphones that you have upstairs because you're autistic. Why don't you just try put your headphones on and then you can probably go back out and keep playing soccer that you love so much without having to hear them make noise. So just bringing it up reminding them yeah because you're, you're autistic and this is what that means and it's no big deal and here's what we can do um uh I think just bringing it up randomly throughout the day is it when it makes sense um in small ways um spread out over a big period of time feels so much easier than having a big conversation about it I love that and and that's what I've done with my son like I've mentioned um, you know, things like that, like, oh, you're autistic, blah, 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 this mm -hmm. and that. Your your brain is a little bit different than other people's. And, it, you know, you can, you have the most amazing memory and you have so many, you love what you do so much. And, and that's a little bit different than other kids. And you might also, you know, struggle with some things that other kids don't. I mean, I didn't say it was all in one sitting, but I but just- Yeah, absolutely. And the, yeah. The, there's so many things that are- um, helping people to know like what's going to be more challenging for them maybe than for other people um, so that they don't get even more frustrated when they experience those challenges so that they know well, this is expected and normal um, and also like all the amazing things uh, like I bet you that right your son knows so much more about Mario Kart than any other kid and isn't Absolutely. he feel so like that's who he would want to be right he would he would he'd, he'd be so proud <laughs> to know that he is so much more of an expert on Mario Kart than other kids are um so well, even when even when we used to go to train shows yes um all of the model train guys you know they're all like super interest 
guys. Yep. <laughs> and my son would like from across the whole arena be like, there's a, and of course it's, it's been a number of years because it was before the pandemic and then the pandemic sort of switched him into video games, but he would name whatever the train is called. Like, Oh, there's a, I'm trying to remember now a 484 is that uh-huh. the Hudson or whatever it's called. Um, and, and he would go up to them and they'd be like, Oh my goodness, this kid knows his trains. And my, my son knew like some of the names of the trains that the model train guys didn't even know. And I was yeah. just like, and this is when he was like this tall. So uh-huh. it's just, yeah. it's adorable. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. So I guess though, but to, to answer your question. So I think that was my development was um, with being non-speaking and then having speech therapy and then um and then later getting a diagnosis myself. So now I, I um, that makes me think of a few other branches that I want to tackle. Uh-huh. <laughs> so, um, okay. The first thing I'll say is we didn't talk about it. Mickey is married and him and his wife have a blended family. They have four children. Mm-hmm. And this is part of what you talked about at ICDL's conference is um, this experience of growing up and being so isolated and feeling like you said, am I stupid? Is there something wrong with me? Which is so um, such an awful way to feel that it led you into the wrong type of relationship when you met someone who finally was interested in you. I don't know how much you want to describe about that. Absolutely. So, um, I think there, you know, so often when we don't realize that our differences are our strengths, when we forget that our differences are our strengths and not only are our differences, our strengths, but the things that make your neighbor so different from you (laughs) are his strength. You know, all of our differences are our strengths. When we don't realize that, when we don't celebrate that, I think the alternative is that we feel sometimes shame around the things that make us different, or we feel maybe like, the things that make us different can be burdens. Um, and I think there can be so, this truly leads to so much genuine real harm, I believe, um, and danger. Um, so growing up, yeah, my mom and my grandpa would always tell me that, boy, Mick, you'll be, you'll be lucky if you find anyone who wants to marry you, or you'll have to find a pretty special person to want to to want to marry you. And I just hear things like this all the time. Um, you know, my mom, when she's talking on the phone to her friends, she'd reference me being the oldest, being her firstborn child, but also like the autistic child and say, well, you know, the first pancake never turns out. Oh. Um, and, you know, when you hear this over your whole life, you internalize all these things. Um, and so I... Yeah, I believed that I would be lucky if anyone wanted to marry me. So that meant that when I was, I guess, 23 and someone did express interest in wanting to date me and then wanting to marry me, I thought, well, this is it. This is this is the only time this will ever happen. So I better just accept it and say yes. Um, And it led me to being in an abusive relationship and then to later having to escape that abusive relationship in the middle of the night with my autistic kid in hand. Um, And yeah, I, 
for the long, I went the abuse was just on me. I thought this is just something I have to accept and just what marriage is for me. And um, that this is why you make commitments to people because you figure you work just, you put up with things. Um, but then when the abuse turned to the younger kid, um, that was when I realized that I had to just get out. Um, yeah, so I think it's just so important to remember that kids are always listening to the things we say and that there's truly so much real danger and real harm in ever making people feel shame around their differences or making people feel like they are burdens because of their differences. Um, and there's so much to be gained by celebrating our differences and by celebrating all of the things that make us different from each other. And it warmed my heart so much to hear that you met somebody who valued, valued you for who you are, that you married and yeah. you have this wonderful family now with four children. So now I'm amazing. with my beautiful wife, Helen. I brought two kids into the relationship. She brought two kids into the relationship. So together we have four kids <laughs> in a very, very busy house. I invest in lots of noise canceling headphones. <laughs> <laughs> and it's interesting. Um, the uh, the next tangent I wanted to go on for myself, not the kids. I should say. Yeah. Yes. Yes. Um, <laughs> so the I I do want to talk about the experience of um, again of when you're younger, a little bit. So I want to remember to go back to yeah. that. But I I want to talk about the experience of what you mentioned in high school, where you said you didn't really know how to interact with people or where to sit during lunch. So yeah. you threw your lunch out and you just paced the hallways. And I was having a conversation. Um, I, I do facilitate ICDL's parent yeah. support group every Monday. And, and I have um, interactions with a lot of different parents and both in that group and outside of that group, because I know other parents who have autistic mm -hmm. kids that don't come to the group. So in one conversation, um, I was speaking with a parent of an older child who, you know, can seem pretty independent. Yeah. But when the parent um, checked in on them, they realized the child hadn't done a number of things that you should do because they didn't know how. So they had bought new um a carton of milk but it remained unopened and it had long expired because they couldn't find their glasses to drink mm. out of out of it even though it was their own milk they could have drank out of the carton but they didn't put two and two together to do that or they didn't know where you know um certain things went so everything was just piled in the bedroom and things like that and it made me wonder how our kids learn to problem solve and figure out things because this is what we do in DIR floor time. Yeah. Early intervention is really about, you know, getting that engagement in circles of communication in a way that um, suits the child. And we're always following the child's lead on that. But really the heart of floor time is pushing past that and getting the child into higher capacities of thinking and problem solving. Um, and I'm wondering when did your self-awareness sort of kick in to understand that about yourself, that you can figure out something, you can figure out how to do something different? 
I mean, it depends on the day and the situation, I would say. Um, I'll give this example. When I was doing Curious Incident of the Dog in the Nighttime, you know, the way they have it set up is you're living in a hotel with the whole rest of the cast. Um, and you usually have a company car um, for the cast or maybe two company cars for the cast. Um, but I couldn't drive at the time. I didn't have a driver's license. Um, and how old were you when you were doing this? Well, this was in New York City? This was in uh, Indianapolis and oh, Syracuse, okay. New York. And um, uh, and I was, I think, 30. Okay. 28, 29, or 30. So I didn't have a driver's license. 28, 29, 30. Um, and you, you're working six days a week. So Monday is the grocery shopping day. Monday is like the day you have off. <laughs> um, and so, you know, the cast would take the company car um, to the, and I couldn't drive it myself. So I just went when they went to the grocery store and I'd think, get one week's worth of food, get one week's worth of food, get one week's worth of food, and then leave with a box of Oreos, two apples and a granola, a box of granola bars, <laughs> and then realized that was not a week's worth of food. <laughs> a box of Oreos, a box of granola bars, and two apples does not work for a week's worth of food. Um, and every week the same thing would repeat: get a week's worth of food, get a week's worth, and I would leave with again like a Trader Joe's fro one Trader Joe's frozen dinner, a box of Oreos, and something else. <laughs> <laughs> um. And so I think what, and even today, like what you're describing with this person or your acquaintance who couldn't figure out how to put things away, um, that executive function for me is one of the biggest challenges in my life now um, to the point that my wife and I, we can't, we're not doing this at the moment, but we sometimes do. Um my wife and I sometimes just say, you know what, we are going to hire cleaners to come to our house every other week. And we're just going to label that as a accommodation. Just uh, we're not going to feel bad about it. We're not going to question it. We're just going to say, hey, this is just what we need to do as an uh, accommodation. I, I have autism. She has um, ADHD and also a traumatic brain injury. Um, uh, and so we just say, you know what, this is what we need to do to function at our best. <laughs> yes. Um, and so, uh, and I think that, you know, when I was doing Curious Simpson, I finally decided, you know what, I'm going to do my best if I just every day buy a $5 breakfast sandwich in the morning from Starbucks for breakfast and buy my, you know, another $5 little sandwich of some kind from Starbucks for lunch. And if I just do that breakfast and lunch every day, just know I'm going to Starbucks twice a day, every day. Um, it relieved so much stress and pressure from, you know, from trying to worry about that executive function to allow me the then just be free and do other things. 
So I don't know when I succeeded at <laughs> executive function, but I will say, I think something that has helped me immensely as an adult is at now being 35, 34, 35, is to just say, you know what? If I still am struggling with these things now, it is totally fine for me to find other workarounds besides just trying to force my brain to do something that it is obviously not good at. And I can, uh, and sometimes it costs more money. You know, being disabled is expensive. <laughs> it is expensive being disabled. Not only, not only, you know, the the unemployment rate for autistic people is estimated to be 85%. Um, and then even if you can get a job, there's currently no federal minimum wage for disabled people. Um, I think a few states now have changed this just very, very recent, like within the last two years or three years, a few states have changed this in the United States on a state level, but not very many. Um, but nationally still, and in the majority of states, there is no federal minimum wage for a disabled person. So while the federal minimum wage for everyone else is $7.25 an hour, if you have a disability a develop or a developmental disability like autism, you can legally be paid as little as a few pennies per hour. And gosh, I, I should look in my book quick. There's, I apologize. You sh uh, there's statistics as to, I'll find it later. Or you can Google it too. Um, hundreds of thousands of autistic people like huge numbers of autistic, I, I, I've, I'm sorry, of disabled people. I don't, mm -hmm. it does not specify what their disabilities mm -hmm. are. Huge numbers of disabled people in the United States that are paid sub-minimum wage. Um, and I think the average pay was something like a dollar and some cents was the average pay per hour they were getting. Um, so not only are disabled people paid less, less employed, paid significantly less in the jobs that we do, but it's more expensive to be disabled too, I think, because you have to do things like hire cleaners to come every two weeks or um, just decide you're gonna go to Starbucks because no matter how many times you go to the grocery store, it does not end up being less expensive or more efficient. <laughs> um, so yeah, so those are some challenges. So that um, reminds me of two quotes that I remembered from the conference that mm -hmm. you said, which is knowledge about yourself is power and there's a place in this world for everybody and always feel confident in asking for what you need because when we advocate for ourselves, we're actually helping everyone. Do you wanna elaborate on those quotes? Sure. Well, I guess the last thing you said was about advocacy. And I think when we advocate for ourselves or when we're advocating for our kids, that can be another time when we feel like we're being burdens or we feel like we're being selfish. Um, you know, schools make us try to feel like such burdens <laughs> for asking for the, the most minimal, most minor <laughs> yeah. things. <laughs> but... Uh, <laughs> Um, but we are actually not being a burden at all or being selfish at all when we advocate for ourselves or for our kids. 
I'll give some examples from the disability community, um, not necessarily related to autism, but I promise you that this works for autism too, no matter why you're advocating for yourself. Um, right. So the deaf and hard of hearing community had to advocate for captions to be put on YouTube videos and to be put on TikToks and Instagram reels. Um, they had to advocate so hard for these things to happen. And they probably felt like they were maybe being burdens or being selfish when they did it. I hope not, but they probably might have. Um, but now that there are captions on these things, it makes all of our lives so much easier. I can watch a Instagram video or a TikTok while I'm on the bus or in the waiting room at the doctor's office or in the library um, without my headphones on and know what's happening. Um, or as our, just as, as, the majority of our population is aging and getting older. You, they can watch a movie uh, on in the living room and not have to lean to the person next to them all the time and say, what, what did that person say? You know, <laughs> it, it just helps make all of our lives easier. Or curb cuts in the sidewalks, right? Those, were, those are required so that people with mobility disabilities can access the sidewalks. But they make my life easier as a dad who's pushing a stroller right? I don't have to wrestle that stroller up onto the sidewalk with my kids in it. I can just use the curb cuts. That makes my life easier. Or when I'm rolling my rolling suitcase in the airport and I see the stairs and I see the ramp, right? Of course, I'm going to take the ramp with my rolling luggage. That makes my life easier. So those are things the disability community had to advocate for. Um, they might've felt selfish or like they were only advocating for something that their community needed that was only going to help their community but it actually makes everyone's life easier and you know neurodiversity is the same way if we can make spaces feel safe and accessible for autistic people it's actually only going to help all of our brains I suspect I suspect that things that are necessary for autistic people are still helpful and make life easier for everyone. <laughs> I love that. Yeah, for sure. Um, another thing that you said at the conference was there's so much danger in feeling that your differences are wrong. Mm -hmm. And we touched on that earlier, but it sort of comes up again now. And, and like the other quote, knowledge about yourself is power. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, we know knowledge about yourself is power. We know this. Um, yeah. And I think one of the things that's so awesome, uh, yeah, I mean, absolutely. It's so frustrating that, um, that we are so scared of things that are different, that we try to suppress them and that we are so scared of things that are different that we try to just pretend if, if we don't, if we don't say, talk about it, maybe it'll just disappear almost. <laughs> Um, even the word disability, you know, um, right. How often, how often do we use or feel the need to use the word, say special instead of disability or, um, special needs or handy capable or things like this, we feel so much discomfort around difference and around disability that sometimes we even, we even just think, oh, maybe if we just use a euphemism and don't say the word directly, it'll all just disappear. <laughs> <laughs> and and the more we can learn that 
there's nothing bad about the things that make us different. In fact, we are able to collaborate better with each other, with people who are different from us, you know, people who are very different from me are going to come to a project with ideas that I would not have come up with on my own. I don't want to be on a team with a bunch of people just like me, because we're all just going to have the same idea and do it the same way. I want people who are different from me, who are going to be thinking about things from different angles and have a different brain wiring or come from different cultures who are going to have so many other ideas on how to look at a problem or from what direction to approach a problem from. Yeah. And when you talk about the experience in school, schools are not there yet. I mean, there's no. little pockets here and there, but I hear this over and over again in support group, how discouraged parents are that their kids are not accommodated in the most simple of ways. Even Mike, I was just, you know, my child, two of the accommodations, like two, my child has a visual timer on their desk and then they get the option to sit in a wiggle cushion on a wiggle cushion or a wobble stool. And I went and visited their classroom in October and saw and they get fidgets too. Um, there were no fidgets in the classroom, no wobble cushions, no wiggle stool, no visual timer. And I talked to the teacher about it. And just now, this month, which is March, we're recording this. It took that long to get those things in the classroom when they are listed in the IEP as requirements. <laughs> and I even sent links to like visual timers, Amazon links that had next day delivery. And they, they're like $7, like $7 <laughs> next day delivery. I'm like, yeah, I'm making this as easy as I can for you. <laughs> sent a link to like a $15, $20, wobble cushion next day delivery um really frustrating you know when i went to school this college isn't better even sometimes but especially when it comes to theater and performing arts but when i went to school for theater i they worked for four years to tr get rid of all the tension and movement in my hands all the fidgeting in my hands um and they said that i would never be castable. I would never be employable as an actor unless I got rid of all that tension and movement in my hands. So I did nothing for four years, but worked to get rid of all that tension and all that movement. Um, it didn't matter if the class was Chekhov, Alexander Technique, uh, Shakespeare, voice, movement, didn't matter. No matter what the class was, the only note I was getting was get rid of all the tension in your hands. So I worked to do that for four years, nothing but that. And after four years of just focusing on that <laughs> through university, I got pretty good at it. But then when I got cast in Curious Incident of the Dog in the Nighttime, all of a sudden I got to let all of that tension and movement come back in a really easy, natural way. And I got to be myself, right? For the first time in my life, I was being valued for being myself. I was being truly, fully accepted for everything that made me me. And and that was another quote that you gave at the conference. You said, how can we make sure that our students feel valued every day? And I, I'm saying it now and I'm not getting emotional, but oh my goodness, that made me bawl my eyes out when you said that, because uh -huh. I really thought about my son in school and how valued he is at his school. And some of his teachers were at the conference and I went over and gave them a hug after mm -hmm. the, your talk. And so many kids don't feel that. 
Um, hopefully they feel that from their parents. You gave an example of how sometimes you didn't feel that with, with your mom. Um, but that, that would be the first step. Like let's, let's try and make sure parents, uh, have their children feel valued, but in schools, having students feel valued, even when they have their differences um, and not making them feel that their differences are wrong. I felt found that to be one of the very powerful messages that you sent and um, your, your life story of your experiences and, you know, how you sort of moved through that. Um, do you have any opinions on, so this is like a very controversial topic, Sure. But lately, you know, we hear voices in the last decade or however many years, give or take, of self-advocates coming forward and really shedding light on the autistic experience that wasn't ever in the mainstream before. And I still hear a lot of people saying um, they have a problem with that because that doesn't represent their child. Like, mm. okay, you were able to figure out, you were able to be in public school, even though you struggled, yeah. you were able to go to college, even though you struggled, you were able to marry and have a family, even though you struggled, you, you, um, were in the cast, even though you struggled at the grocery store, you still managed to quote unquote right. function. And then there's, you know, all of the debate about functioning labels. I talked about that in the podcast sure. with self-advocate Karen Rose, but what about the kids that really can't figure it out and they really can't function in public school uh, unless they have such severe accommodate, not severe, serious uh, accommodations. That they're which, completely which are, segregated still. Which are unrealistic point? as well, because yeah. those, those, unfortunately, those accommodations aren't going to be there for them everywhere they go. So where's the balance? Because it's, it's, people tend to like to put things in black and white and it's not. <laughs> sure. Absolutely. Well, I would just say, I would encourage those parents to take to TikTok and Instagram. There are, there's such a huge new generation of self-advocates that were not able to be self-advocates before um, TikTok existed. Um, but now TikTok has just, I guess, is a very accessible platform to a lot of non-speaking autistic people who didn't really have platforms before. So I would say head to TikTok and or Instagram and follow a bunch of non-speaking autistic self-advocates because there are so many adult self-advocates who are non-speaking doing awesome work and you can follow those people. Um, they tend, I think they tend for the most part, I think the autistic community tends to say the same things really a lot and agree on quite a bit. Um, but I think it can be helpful for parents to be hearing it from someone who they feel resembles their child. Um, so hearing it from getting to hear things and learn from a, a non-speaking adult self-advocate on Instagram or TikTok might be really helpful and awesome as a way for us to bridge communities together and realize that we're all on the same team trying to accomplish the same goals. Um, and I would also just say, be careful about comparing your seven-year-old or eight-year-old to what a 30-year-old, uh, self-advocate is doing. <laughs> I mean, I would not, I would not, if, if, if people were not autistic, right, in the neurotypical world, I would not go up to a 
40 year old and say, oh, you know, you don't act anything like my five-year-old. You're, you're nothing <laughs> like my five-year-old. Um, <laughs> I, so I would say that just knowing that, you know, every, every autistic child, every single autist, I mean, let's hope, knock on wood, knock on wood, every single autistic child is going to grow up to become an autistic adult. And when your child is an autistic adult, I think you would really want their voice to be listened to and heard. If your autistic child, when they become an adult, is speaking about their lived experience, I think you would hope that people would listen to them and value the things that they're saying. And the best way we can model that now, while our kids are still young, is by listening to autistic adults to show them that autistic voices are valuable and valued, that autistic adult voices are valuable and valued, so that then when they are an adult, they will demand nothing less but their voice being heard as well. They will not be shoo-shooed into a corner or be put in positions where there are meetings happening about them, where their voice is not the core voice in that meeting, you know? Um, I really think so powerful for autistic young people to be seeing their parents listening to autistic adult voices, whether they're autistic speaking adults or non-speaking adults. Um, it's so, so important. Yeah, I think. Um, and also, I forget what I was about to say something, because also knowing, you know, one of the things that was hard for me growing up is when I was non-speaking people assumed that that meant I also couldn't understand what they were saying or didn't know what they were saying or what was happening around me. And it led people to talking about me when I'm in the room in really unwell ways, not ideal ways. Um, and so just always assuming competency, always assuming competency. You know, when you, there, when you, there's, um, most of the non-speaking uh, adult self-advocates um, who use either AAC, some form of AAC or um, key, keyboard text-to-speech, um, they all they all say the same things, that they could understand everything that was happening around them, even when they couldn't speak. So just knowing that one of the ways that you can model valuing your child one of the ways that you can model valuing um, valuing your child and and setting that expectation, that value, making your child value themselves to the point that when they're an adult, they will not be told what's best for them if they don't agree, <laughs> that they will speak up for themselves and know that their voice holds power and weight and should be valued is by letting our children see us learning from autistic adults and knowing that being a parent of a autistic child, that is such a value, that is such a legitimate real identity, right? It is such a legitimate and real identity to be a parent of an autistic child, but it is not the same identity or the same lived experience as your child has, right? It is not the same lived experience or the same identity as being autistic yourself. Um, unless you are autistic yourself, unless you are autistic some, yourself, absolutely, <laughs> which, which is so common are, yeah. as well. Very yeah. common as well. Yes. 
Yes, absolutely. But that 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 those are two different identities. Those are like for me, those are two different identities. Those are yes. two different paths. Um yes. and so the more we can know that that we're not taking away from that by saying that that's not devaluing how valuable your role is as an autistic as a parent of an autistic child that you know your child better than anyone in the world right we are not devaluing any of that um by stating that it is also just a different lived experience mm -hmm. it is a different identity than um than your child's identity or being autistic yes I hope that answered your question it, or was yeah somewhat... and and it also circled back to the other question i was going to ask which was parents of non-speaking children who are young like what would you recommend they do given your experience from that but you you sort of did answer that you're you know well, yeah assume would, that they understand everything that they're saying absolutely and i would them i would really also encourage them to um from a young age when they from when your child's young like start working on aac or on it with a keyboard, start like finding alternate communication and validating that communication as just as legitimate and real as spoken English. Sometimes I think in this culture, we can sort of poo-poo other forms of communication, other languages as not as legitimate as spoken English. And so the more we can legitimize, AAC is equally valid as uh, an equally valid form of communication. Um, I so often speak to parents who sometimes are really scared when their kid starts using a keyboard or AAC. I'm not, I don't really understand this reaction, but I, I, I've heard it from parents. Um, I even have a friend who I've worked with who their child started using, um, just a key, a, you know, just a keyboard, um, with a text to voice app. Um, and used it maybe for a year or, and was saying all sorts of things and the parent got scared and or thought that they were somehow pushing their thoughts on the kid thought oh there's no way because she had not assumed she'd not assumed competency for years until the child was maybe 13 you know de decades of not assuming competency so then all of a sudden to see the child speaking by way of this computer was terrifying I think and didn't and, didn't believe it like almost didn't believe it correct I think so and almost thought she must be somehow telepathically putting these words in her child's brain I don't yes just was all sorts of hoops to jump through because it was harder it was more hurtful for her to realize how intelligent her child was and that she'd gone she, she didn't thinking see it. that he didn't know or have any thoughts like she really went decades, I think, not realizing he had thoughts almost of his own. Um, and so it was more hurtful to realize that that had happened than it was to come up with all these other possibilities for why this was not real. Um, and but I would just say, you know, language is so important for all kid children, for all kids. It is so important to be able to communicate your thoughts. Um, and so... So just starting with AAC or a keyboard um, or whatever, you know, work with your, you, you're the expert on your child, but finding something that we're, even if it's 
sign language or even just pointing at things, you know, just find some, find, find some sort of way that you can communicate with your child besides spoken English um, and validate it as early as possible. Not as this is a temporary thing or hopefully one day they'll speak. Like you can think that hopefully one day they'll speak. And they might, but that's not a reason not to do it. Sure. Absolutely. Yeah, exactly. They might speak verbally one day. You can work towards that, but don't treat the AAC as a lesser than secondary Mm -hmm. stop along the way to the end goal. Um, Treat the AAC as equally valid as the work you're doing in speaking verbally. Right. And and that circled really nicely into the next point I wanted to make (laughs) too before we sign off today, which I brought up at the ICDL conference in in my talk with um, Emil Haus, our our board president at ICDL, Mm -hmm. who's a self-advocate who was non-speaking till he was 15 and brought up a lot of the points that you did. Um, And ICDL's CEO, Jeff Gunzel, when we had that panel about some of the, you know, four different topics that we see going forward, including neurodiversity movement, paradigm shift, uh, evolution of DIR, et cetera. One of the points I brought up from the parent voice was, do we as parents see the potential in our kids? Mm -hmm. And sometimes because of all the false narratives around us and the medical models, we don't let ourselves see the potential in our kids. I I find there's like a subset of parents that like Emile's mother who fought for them and believed in them and like, I know you can do this and they really see that potential. But there's also the subset that just think, oh, well, my child has an intellectual disability and they'll never this and they'll never this or whatever. How important it is to see the potential in your kids Mm -hmm. and then advocate for your kids, even if the professionals don't see the potential in them. First of all, find new professionals to work with if they don't. (laughs) Yeah. But, But how important that is. And I think you've given us some really good tools for doing that. Thanks so much. Yeah, so important. And I love what you said about the medical model of dis- how we transitioning from the medical model to the social model where there's nothing wrong with a human being. Every human being is awesome and perfect. There's nothing wrong with a human being that needs to be fixed. We just need to get advocate for society to be more accessible and accepting. And focus on strengths because differences mm-hmm. are our strengths is your message. And absolutely. I love that. Uh, I do want to direct people to your website. I am sharing my screen for those watching on YouTube. For those listening on audio, you can go to affectautism.com and find the blog post on Mickey Rowe, R-O-W-E. And this is his website. Um, It has a number of little videos, uh, which I I like the one from HuffPost. And this... Um, had a lot of the points that you brought up at the ICDL conference, but then mm-hmm. there's there's other great videos, there's testimonials and ways that you can contact Mickey if you would like him to speak at your event or if you have ideas of how he can consult so um, listeners can access Mickey through that way. And uh, thank you so much, Mickey, for speaking today with us. It was such a pleasure to have you at the ICDL conference and um, I'm excited that you 
loved what you heard about DIR floor time and, and saw the community that we're trying to do all of the things that you talk about and succeeding was... at not trying you are so succeeding <laughs> thank you you're thank teaching you. Always, me a thing or two always a work in progress but <laughs> yes um and, and yeah i think parents listening practitioners whoever's listening will find a lot of what you said today very helpful so i really thank you for taking the time to speak with me today oh thank you so much for having me Caregivers, did you know that I facilitate ICDL's Parent Support Drop-In every Monday at 1 p.m. Eastern Time? These are free drop-in support meetings to help support families who are using floor time with their children. Parenting a child with developmental differences can be a new challenge for some parents. Let us help you find the connection and joy with your child as you support their developmental process. We are here for you when you need the support guidance or just to share stories and experiences. Find out more at affectautism.com slash events, or go to the parents tab at icdl.com. Until next time, here's to choosing play and experiencing joy every day.